0: The National Archives podcast series, Morbidity and Mortality on Convict Voyages to 19th Century Australia, presented by Hamish Maxwell Stewart. Between 1787 and 1868, 160,000 men, women and children were transported from southern England and Ireland to the penal colonies in Australia. Now, the voyage that they took was long. Four months at sea to get from the British Isles to to Australia. And we know the exact route that those ships took because the surgeon's records and the logs for the voyages contain the latitude and longitude. So we can plot the actual voyage route on Google Earth. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that four months at sea as a prisoner on board a convict vessel would be a lethal experience. And indeed, I think most people's reference frame when they think about transportation to Australia is the slave trade across the Atlantic. It's the obvious parallel. Largely because of the activities of the anti-slavery campaign in the British Isles, the horrors of the Middle Passage were all too well known in the late 18th, 19th, and indeed the 20th and 21st centuries. So this is uh, an image of the slave ship Brooks, which was used by the the anti-slavery campaign to very, very good effect. However, when we look at mortality on convict voyages to Australia, something very, very interesting emerges. What I'm going to do is plot the crude death rate starting with the First Fleet and going right up to the last vessel to arrive in Western Australia in 1868. So this is the crude um, the death rate over that, that period. Now, you'll see the death rate on British slavers sailing across the Atlantic in the 1790s was 32 per 1,000 embarked. The death rate early on for convicts sent to Australia was about half that. Then it fell rather rapidly, And indeed, after the introduction of what's called the surgeon-superintendent system in 1815, it remained low right the way through the rest of the 19th century. So how low is low? Well, we can compare the experience of being a convict at sea with other ocean-going voyages. And one of the obvious comparisons is with... Free migrants, so these are steerage passengers who paid their fare to go to the United States at almost exactly the same time as the convict vessels departed for Australia. So these are, this is data from the period um, 1820 through to 1850. So this is the, the death rate for male immigrants sailing from places like Liverpool to New York, and there's female immigrants. And this is the death rate for the convicts over the same period. So this is really quite staggering. It was much safer to travel as a convict to Australia than it was to pay your passage to the United States. I, mean, I guess there's some lessons about this. It's always a dodgy thing when you hand over the money before you actually get to your end destination. But nevertheless, these are very, very surprising results. And while they were recognised at the time as being important, and historians have um, latched onto them in recent years, because they happen at a rather interesting moment in world history. So, we're going back a million years and we're looking at life expectancy in a very kind of like crude way. But we can estimate life expectancy for Homo erectus because great apes live for about 20 years. Uh, their life expectancy at birth is about 20. Homo sapiens probably lived as long as um, hunter gatherer societies, it's about 40. Um, indeed, with the advent, of the agricultural revolution, when people started farming, life expectancy probably dipped. But it certainly didn't rise until the mid-19th century. So we can see a slight rise in Western mortality rates around about 1840. Sorry, not mortality rates, life expectancy. Now, what's really interesting about this is that we cannot attribute this to medicine, at least not medicine alone. So, for example, if we think of the big medical breakthroughs, like the introduction of the first generation of antibiotics, they didn't happen until the 1920s, well after this transition was underway. Now, what's interesting about the combat voyages is they're happening right in this very, very early period, so that we have improved health outcomes at sea for a population that you would perhaps least expect to benefit from whatever goes into this health transition. Now, there is some consensus that improved hygiene and sanitation is very, very important, and there's some co- controversy about the role that improved nutrition played in this, but most historians think it's a combination of those things which helped to improve life expectancy and that medical intervention has, benefit, or has benefited individuals really post the Second World War and it helped to increase the trajectory. One of the things, of course, that's very interesting about convict vessels is that the death rate improved roughly at the same time as trained surgeon superintendents were posted onto the vessels. Now, these surgeon superintendents, lots of them were Scottish and Irish, were medically trained men who had served in the Royal Navy and took up a posting on a convict vessel. Many of them hoped to actually eventually migrate to the Australian colonies. It was quite common for them to take several voyages out to Australia... And they hoped to pick up a position in the colonial medical service and eventually move into private practice in the Australian colonies. The general assumption is that it's the surgeon superintendents who make the difference. I think we have to try and explain how it is that they are effective at bringing down death rates at sea. At first sight, I think this is a bit of a puzzle. Because pretty much everything that we know about medical practice in the first half of the 19th century suggests that it wouldn't make dramatic impacts upon survival rates. Bleeding prisoners at sea, for example, is not something that you would expect to improve their chances of surviving the voyage. But I think that there are two things that are very important. The first is that both the ship and the convict themselves were public property. The convict literally was public property. The state had property rights in their body following their sentence in a court. And as such, the surgeon could intervene with them or in- intervene in caring for them in ways that it was impossible for the state to actually impose their will in other spheres of life. So you could do things with the bodies of the poor on board convict vessels that you couldn't in the east end of London, for example. And there's lots of evidence that the surgeons on board these vessels and the naval board that they reported to were very much aware of this. The journals that the surgeons kept contain experiments, sometimes experiments that were set up in conjunction with the naval board. So, for example, what happens if you treat scurvy patients with potash of nitrate instead of lime juice? It was actually an experiment that was run on convict vessels. And the surgeons are reporting back the whole time about things that they think make an impact on healthcare. The other thing which undoubtedly made a big difference was that the surgeons were able to control the environmental space of the ship, and they thought that it was important to do so. Now, the reason why they thought this was that almost to a man, that they belonged to one of the various branches of um, anti-contagion or miasma theory, that they thought the contagious disease was spread by um, effusia, so bad smells, etc., etc. So as a result, that what they tried to do was make sure that the interior of the ship stayed dry. They didn't like swabbing things down with water if they could possibly avoid it. So they dry scrubbed the decks, and they used substances like chloride of lime and vinegar in order to try and make the environment hygienic as they saw it. I quite like this example to actually show, is, I think it's a very, very good illustration of how surgeons typically thought about disease transmission on the voyage to Australia. This is taken from the log of the Surgeon's Journal for the Catherine Stuart Forbes. Um, John Stevenson was the surgeon. And on that particular voyage, there was an outbreak of cholera. When the ship got to Hobart in Van Diemen's Land, now called Tasmania, Stevenson wasn't particularly excited by the thought that the convict clothing on board and the bedding may be infected with um, cholera. And in fact, he wrote to the commissariat office in Hobart suggesting that all of the items of clothing and bedding could be washed and recycled into the commissariat store. And the reason why he thought this was because he said that cholera was produced by an unknown state of the atmosphere acting on constitution susceptible of its influence and that it is not communicated either by a fusia or the touch of a person that's affected. And he went on to say he thought it was very, very um, unlikely that that kind of bad atmosphere could survive on board a convict vessel that had sailed through so many temperature zones. The commissariat store was less than convinced and they made sure that the clothing and bedding was rowed ashore by three constables and burnt on the beach. Generally speaking, the surgeons on board the convict vessels thought that disease was promoted by two distinct causes. They called these pre-existing causes and exciting causes. So the exciting causes were things that they could control. So the damp environment, poor ventilation, rotting or putrid matter, or indeed the diet that was fed to convicts. The pre-existing causes are kind of like get-out-of-jail clause because they are things that are invested in the convict themselves. So, for example, on the worst voyage that we looked at in our particular study, the East London, it's a real um, outlier, which had 19 female convicts died out of 133 on that voyage, and 12 children. When we looked at the reports that the surgeon Edward Caldwell wrote, He was very quick to blame the death on the dissolute lives that the convicts had led prior to being embarked upon the vessel. So Catherine Murray, for example, he said, had led a dissolute kind of life and had been in a state of intoxication. Eleanor Cooney was of weak and nervous temperament and filthy habits, and others were weak and nervous or addicted to alcohol, tobacco, or indeed opiates. And so... The surgeons were very much aware that unless they controlled these as best they could, then what would happen is that the pre-existing causes would come to the fore and patients would die on the voyage. And this is very much reflected in the layout of convict vessels. In the stern of the vessel, the officers were quartered and below decks, the crew and the military detachment and then midships you had a prison divided into messes and interestingly in the bow of the vessel there was a, a hospital and the hospital was always located here so that the movement of the vessel would push fresh air through the hospital to make sure that it was ventilated uh, one of the other things i think this is very very important to understand about the voyage to australia was the regimentation imposed by the Surgeon Superintendent. So at first light, the convicts were mustered, and they were divided into divisions and washed in rotation. So every person on board was washed at least twice a week, and on some vessels every day. The bedding, when the weather permitted, was always stowed on the decks around the edge of the vessel. The convicts were regularly inspected, they were shaved, they had their hair regularly cut, and they were divided into different divisions which, in rotation, cleaned the vessel. So the decks were continuously um, being scrubbed, for example. In the afternoon, they were ordered to perform very routine tasks, like picking oakum, so taking apart old strands of rope, or in the case of female vessels, knitting and sewing, And interestingly, in the evenings, all convict vessels conducted schools. So the more literate of the prisoners taught the other convicts who were split into small classes according to their ability to read and write. And in the evening, before the convicts were sent down to the prison to be locked down for the night, there was dancing on deck and on some vessels, boxing matches. In order to take a more detailed look at what was going on on board these convict vessels. We looked at some of the previous work that had been done on the voyage to Australia and noted some of the limitations. Historians have been looking at death in particular amongst convicts since the 1980s. But the work that they had done had used aggregate data for the voyage. So it told you when the voyage, when the ship set sail and when it arrived in Australia how many convicts were loaded and how many died. It didn't tell you where the prisoners died during the course of that voyage. It didn't tell you how many were sick during the voyage. It didn't tell you how many died after the voyage arrived at its destination. And it was also very, very difficult to determine how sick or healthy the convicts were when they were put on board. There's a slightly more detailed study that appeared in 2006 looking at a sample of female convict vessels, which determined that vessels departing from the British Isles in winter were at greater risk than those that departed at other times. And it speculated that the rate of sickness increased over the course of the voyage, so the second half of the voyage was more dangerous than the first. And it suggested that male convict vessels would be at greater risk than female vessels, since there were more individuals on board Uh, male vessels per tonne than there were on female vessels. So we set out to test all of this. We took a sample of convict voyages. It's just over 80% of those that sailed to Van Diemen's Land. Now, those ships carried 48,000 male convicts and 12,400 female convicts. But we also went through the harbour master's records for the port of Hobart in order to try and find out how many other individuals were on board. Now, the reason why we did that was because we couldn't get a handle on how densely packed each vessel was without trying to establish who else was on board. And there were nearly 10,000 crew on those vessels, 7,400 soldiers on the male vessels but not the female. The female vessels did not have a military detachment on board. The soldiers brought with them just over 2,000 wives and children. And then there was a relatively small number of other passengers and their children, who by and large sailed on female convict vessels. So if you went as a passenger to Australia on a convict vessel, you usually went on a female vessel, not a male vessel. But very importantly, we also found that the female convicts brought nearly 2,000 of their own children to Australia. And those children were quartered in the prison along with their mothers. So whereas the voyages carried nearly 61,000 convicts, there was a total of 84 and thousand individuals actually on board. So then what we did was that we looked at the wonderful series of surgeons' records for convict vessels for the, the voyages that we had selected. Now, there's a very important part of each um, surgeon's journal where the surgeon tabulated every single episode where a convict had been entered into sick bay, so gone into the hospital at the front of the vessel... Uh, that table has the date when the convict was admitted, their name, their age. and It says um, their status on board, because sometimes soldiers and children and sailors were also admitted into the hospital. It gives a diagnosis, the date of discharge, and the outcome. And we added to that the tonnage of the vessel, its Lloyd's insurance rating, whether it stopped off on the voyage or not, how long the voyage was, and then finally... Although there was no record or no single record of convict deaths in Van Diemen's Land, we went through a whole series of records that recorded information about death and linked all of them together to reconstitute the death rate for the convict colony of Van Diemen's Land so we could see if there was a relationship between death and sickness at sea and death on land. This is the result of that exercise. So what I've got here is a diagram showing the Death rate in port, then at sea, and over the first 12 months after landing in Van Diemen's land. And to make this more um, readable, I have plotted men in blue and girls in pink, for which I (laughs) apologise. So this is the death rate for men over that period. It's very low in port. This is lower than the death rate for men aged in their 20s. In Britain at the time. Now the reason for that is that the surgeons are doing their job and they're rejecting people who they don't think are fit to make the voyage. And then the death rate climbs steadily during the voyage. Interesting finding. And in fact, the two moments when male convicts are most at risk are the first two months after landing in Australia. And then the death rate falls and it falls to really very low levels. So these are comparable to death rates for British and Irish working-class men in the 19th century. Convict Australia was certainly not a killing field. So then we plotted the death rate for women. Now, bear in mind that there's lots of evidence that women were not as densely packed on vessels, so you would expect their death rate at sea to be less than the men. And this is what we got. So much more at risk in the port rising risk and at much, much greater risk at sea, but then there's a real puzzle. And I really like it when these things happen. The death rate for women falls below that for men when the ship arrives in Australia and remains lower, indeed not just for the first year, but throughout the period of sentence. So girls more at risk at sea, less on land. So he wanted to try and uncover the story behind that particular conundrum. Now... These things are always really, really complicated, but uh, this is the only one of these I'm going to show you. But we ran a lot of bivariate stats on the various attributes for each voyage. Um, This is, I think, the most important of those exercises because it told us that we could trust the records. What we found was that the length of the sick list that the the surgeons kept, so how many people they, they recorded as being entered into sick bay, decreased with their experience. So the more times they sailed to Australia, the more slack they became at keeping records. So that worried us. But we did find that the length of the sick lists increased over time. So there is evidence that Jackson was right, that later voyages sailing to Australia had more sick convicts on board than earlier ones. So the 1830s were worse than the 1820s. Comforting for us, we found that there was a very strong relationship between the length of time that a convict was recorded as spending in bay, and both deaths during the voyage and deaths after the vessel had landed in Hobart. So there was clear e- evidence that the morbidity records for the voyage could actually be trusted in the sense that they did correlate with the recorded deaths, and indeed they also made sense of the death statistics for convicts post-disembarkation. So what I've done here is I've just summarised all of the different things that we looked at, and I can just walk you through it. So we looked at 208 male voyages and 81 female voyages. They took about the same time to get to Australia, 116 days on average for the male voyages, 118 for the female voyages. We found that there was no relationship between the length of the voyage and the death rate. So the monthly death rate was not greater if the voyage took longer or indeed shorter. We did find, however, that it was better if the voyage, if the ship stopped off en route to Australia. So over half of them didn't. So they sailed for four months at sea without coming into port. But of those that did, there was a slight benefit. We looked at the mean age of uh, of patients when they were admitted into the hospital, and it was nearly identical. When we looked at the number of admissions into hospital during the voyage, that women were much, much more likely to be admitted into the hospital than men. They also spent longer in hospital, and there were, nearly, uh, were getting on for twice as many deaths per 1,000 convicts on female vessels. When we looked at death rates in terms of the number of passengers per tonne, we did find a relationship, but it wasn't the one we expected. We found the less densely packed the vessel, the, the greater the chance that there would be more deaths so just say that again, went the absolute opposite way. Now, the reason for this was because it was true that there were less female convicts on board um, vessels, and particularly because there wasn't a military detachment on board, so there were less people on board a female convict vessel. But what's driving that, that really strange result is this stat over here, that female convict vessels are just more at risk at sea, even though there are less people on board. We looked at the age of the vessel... Male convict vessels were actually considerably older than female convict vessels. The female convicts got the newer vessels. But again, so that didn't make any sense as well. So this is the high death rates, that's the the lower ones. Male convict vessels had worse insurance ratings than female convict vessels. The only thing that was loaded in the the male convicts' favour was that the surgeons were more likely to have made a previous voyage. There's lots of evidence that... When surgeons were introduced into the business of transporting convicts to Australia, they were very likely to start off with a female convict vessel, and we think that's because these were considered to be less of a a challenge. The security risk was um, less. There are a couple of things which immediately jumped to mind. We wondered whether higher death rates on female convict vessels were driven by the dangers of giving birth at sea, and we can dismiss that. Um, There were children born at sea, and there were were some mothers who died, but it's not a significant number. We then wondered whether women were more susceptible to scurvy during these voyages, and we found, no, it's the other way around. If scurvy is going to occur, it's going to occur on a male ship. Two and a half times more scurvy cases on male ships than on female ships. What we did find, however, was that female convicts were much more likely to be diagnosed as suffering from diarrhoea or dysentery, and they were much, much more likely to die from diarrhoea or dysentery-attributed deaths. In other words, female convict ships were less hygienic than male ships. So at least now we had a target to actually try and investigate. We wondered whether this had something to do with the different handling of male and female convicts before they got on the convict vessel to go to Australia, because the processes were entirely different. Largely speaking, male convicts were warehoused in dismasted warships like this one, this is the York, hulks, and they could be on a hulk for several months before they were embarked on a convict vessel, usually in groups of batches of 80. Female convicts, by contrast, went through the county jail system. They were moved in batches to London, they were kept in prisons in London for a much shorter period of time than men were warehoused in hulks and then moved on to convict vessels. And it's possible that the way that men are treated on board a hulk differs from the way that women were treated in the county jail system. So we had a look at that by going through parliamentary papers and trying to find different examples of prison rations and then trying to convert them into the amount of calories that would be fed to the the convicts. And what we discovered was that prisoners on board hulks were really well fed. They got about 3,000 calories a day. Now, that is way more than is recommended for a modern diet. I and mean, if you sit in front of a computer and eat 3,000 calories a day, you become distinctly chubby. And it's much more than male convicts were getting in prison. And the reason why the diet was generous is because convicts on hulks were expected to work around the docks. So they were fed a diet which the 19th century administration thought would be sufficient for heavy labour. The women in the county jails, by contrast, were given about 2,000 calories a day. That's still relatively generous by current standards, but I'm not sure that we can actually convert um, current nutrition back into the 19th century. We have to bear in mind that there was no central heating, that clothing wasn't as good. Um, We also have to take into account the impact that higher levels of manual labour made on the body, as well as greater instances of disease. So why were female convicts fed 1,000 calories less than male convicts a day? And we think the reason was that the county jail rate was positioned to... or the county jail ration was positioned to be worse than the poorhouse, for fairly obvious reasons. Because if you were fed better than the poorhouse, then what was to stop you committing a crime in order to get the equivalent of Social Security in a jail? So the jail rations were punitive. So as a result... When women came on board convict vessels, they were less well-fed than men. Just as a quick aside, the ration on board the voyage to Australia, we've only calculated it so far for men, it was less than the Hulk. And yet we do have one piece of data from a surgeon who weighed every single charge before they got on the vessel, when they crossed the equator, and when they arrived in Australia. And we know that men put on weight during the voyage. And we think this is because the work that they did on board the convict vessel was less energy-sapping than the work that they did in the hulks. So we know that convict women were less well-fed than men. We also wondered whether they were in a worse shape because of the journey that they had undertaken. So these are the ports that convict vessels sailed from. Almost all female convict vessels sailed from the Thames or from Dublin. And we wondered whether there was a relationship between the distance that female convicts had been moved and their record, of morbidity and mortality at sea. And one of the reasons why we wanted to test this was because quite a few of the surgeons said it was a problem, particularly for women who were moved from Yorkshire and um, um, Lancashire. They said that they came down in a very, very poor state, that they were moved on public stagecoaches and things like that. The women from Scotland were brought down on mail packets, so they were brought by sea. What we did find is that there is a relationship... So we've numbered these d- various zones, and there was an increasing record of morbidity, but it's tiny. It doesn't really account for much of the difference. And we do get this, um, this result as well here, that the women from Scotland actually fared much better than anybody else on board ships sailing from the Thames. Because I've got a Scottish background, I attribute this to um, better administration of the Scottish prison system, which I think is actually probably the case. But it might be just that... Um, Moving people by sea is a lot more efficient than moving them by land. We also looked at the Irish voyages to see whether we could see a knock-on effect from the famine. But we can find no difference in morbidity or mortality between pre-famine and post-famine. What this suggests to us is that the diet that Irish convicts get during the famine in jail is sufficient to lay to rest the worst effects of famine. So there's there's no evidence of knock-on from the famine to deaths and ill health at sea. Now, what we can do is plot the percentage of each voyage which have passed at various points on Google Earth. Google Earth's a wonderful tool. So what this has allowed us to do is to look not just at the distribution of particular diagnoses over the course of the voyage... So this is scurvy, where 100% means ship arrived in Australia, and zero down the other end means it's still in port. Now, what interests us about the distribution of scurvy cases, several things. One was that we were getting scurvy cases fairly early on into the voyage, which suggests that prisoners were already vitamin C deficient before they got on board. But secondly, we've got this interesting plateau and then a big dip. And so we wondered where the ship was at those particular points. And in fact what we find is that just before there's lots of potential stop-off points. So starting with Madeira and then running up to the Cape Colony here. And so that distribution of scurvy cases I think is clearly influenced by surgeons' decisions to stop off or not. And what generally happens is that the, the ship plans to sail without stopping. But if they see signs of scurvy that they'll pull into port and reprovision And so this is why you get this trough in the number of scurvy cases. And then this is deep in the southern ocean. So if scurvy is a real problem, it's going to be, as you would expect, in the latter end of the voyage. Some diagnoses become less frequent as the voyage progresses towards Australia. And this is particularly the case with fevers and the um, highly related diseases of the nervous system, which are basically acute headaches. This is evidence of something which Australian historians have suspected for quite some time. That many diseases might have burnt their way out on the passage to Australia because the voyage took such a long time and the number of people on board was so small that by the time the vessel got to Australia, there was nobody in an infectious state left, and therefore the Australian population was protected from many disorders that were wide, infectious disorders that were widespread in Europe until the second half of the 19th century when vessels became larger and sailing time was reduced. And then we've got another category of diseases or disorders which increase during the second half of the voyage. And there's two that are interesting here from our point of view. One is diarrhoea and dysentery. So that tends to increase. And the other is accidents. And I think that there's a relationship between the two. So it's really after 40% of the voyage is completed that the rate of accidents starts to kick in. And this is when the, um, the vessel starts to hit in the roaring forties. And I'll show you a map in a second. But let's just look at the distribution of diarrhoea and dysentery cases over the course of the voyage. So that's men, and this is women. So you can see the surgeon... There are some problems early on. People are bringing infections on board. The surgeon seems to do a pretty good job of getting it under control, and then he loses control in the second half, and particularly this is the case with female vessels. And if we do this on a map... It's just at that point when the vessels, they swing out towards the coast of Brazil and try and catch the Roaring Forties and zip across the southern part of the globe. Now, what's significant about this is that the size of the waves increases dramatically. Weather conditions get a lot more turbulent in the second part of the voyage, hence the rise in the number of accidents. And we think that the reason why diarrhoea and dysentery becomes a problem is because it's more difficult to scrub the vessel down and we think this is particularly the case in female births where they're young children. And um, what's happening is the, um, my wife's a GP, so she tells me that the technical term is the oral-fecal the, the oral transmission route. That and In fact, we do have further evidence that the births, the, the, um, the messes where there are young children are particularly susceptible to disorders. So it's having small children on board, um, particularly in turbulent weather, which makes female convict vessels more risky environments than male. Now, I'm just going to say some short words about this relationship here, so this flicking flicking round. So female uh, risk of death diving underneath the male risk in Australia. Now, the first thing to say is that these death rates are very low, every which way that we check them that they are surprisingly low for a penal colony which tried to extract labour from convict bodies, sometimes by using force. One of the things that really interested us about that low female mortality rate was that we know this was absolutely not the case in Britain and Ireland during the 19th century. So women in their teens and their adult life were more at risk than men. So as infants, they were at less risk. They had an advantage as infants and they had an advantage in old age. But during the middle part of life, they were at greater risk. So the black line here, this is men and women have equal risk of dying at any particular age, and if the line slips below, then women are at greater risk. So here you've got from quite an early age, this is mid-19th century, this is the the greater risk that women are exposed to. And in fact, the World Health Organisation uses this relationship to actually monitor... Um, improvements in health in developing countries. So Britain managed to shift this line up above so that um, currently women at less risk of death at every single um, age, round about 1910. The thought that Australia had actually managed to do that with convicts in the 1840s we thought was quite exciting. So we wondered whether it was possible that some of the things that surgeons were doing on board the vessels were then being imported onto the shore, and that convict lives were so well regulated that the mortality transition was in fact in effect in Australia as well. Well, that may be the case, but things aren't quite as simple as that. We know the reason for the difference in male and female outcomes in Australia, and it's actually really quite simple. The death data that we have doesn't give medical causes of death but it does routinely record accidents. Now, we know that in England and Wales, men were at greater risk of accidents than women. So about um, six and a half deaths per thousand were attributed to um, accidents in um, men, and it's only about one and a half for women. In convict Van Diemen's land, the rate shoots up to 18.77 for men and 2.8 for women. So men are at greater risk simply because the work that they do in a penal colony is more dangerous. So some of them are buried by um, rock slides, they're killed by falling trees, they're drowned in rivers, and quite a lot of them, interestingly, are shot while trying to abscond. But when we factor this in, we can say that if you strip out accidents and look at underlying causes, women are at greater risk than men, both categories are at lesser risk of mortality than working-class Britons, particularly working-class Londoners, would have been in the 19th century. So the end headline still holds that convict Australia might have been psychologically not a very good place to be sent, but there's no evidence that, in fact, you're at greater risk of, of death. But I should add one rider. Efficient labour exploitation schemes do keep their charges alive rather than kill them off. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded live on the 11th of October 2012 at the National Archives, Q. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.